This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, hello and welcome, everyone, to the newest episode of Urban Political Podcast. I am Nitin Bhatla, and I'm part of the extended collective of the Urban Political Podcast, which was founded by Marcus Kip and Ross Beveridge. And today we are here to discuss the newest book, "Fragments of the City," by Professor Colin McFarlane.、Uh, Colin has previously published several books on infrastructure and informality. These include "Infrastructure Lives," which was published with Stephen Graham, "Everyday Sanitation: Informal Settlements in Mumbai," which was published in 2011. Learning the City Knowledge and Translocal Assemblage, which was also published in 2011, he's、uh, published these books among a dozen of journal articles, book chapters, and edited volumes. In my opinion, it would not be unfair to say that this recent book, Fragments of the City, then brings the prolific writing of Colin、uh, on infrastructure and informality together across the extremely wide geographical range that he's operated across. The fragments of the city is published by the University of California Press. It contains 328 pages and 28 photographs. Not quite a lot, I would say, for a book、um, which is so creative and fun to read and so imaginatively written. It's available for $34.95 in the United States or 27 British pounds in the United Kingdom. And it's available in both in paperback and ebook. I read the book in about two sittings、uh, on on a spring day here in Zurich, and it is rare that I stick to a book and I read the book so quickly. And it's a testament to、uh, the way the book has been written. It really makes you turn the page. Well, I have a lot to say about the book, and it intersects with a lot of my interests on filmmaking and art. But maybe lis-、uh, listening about the book from me is not so interesting as、uh, listening about it from the guests we have today. So today we have with us、uh, Dr. Kevin Ward, Dr. Tatiana Time, and Dr. Theresa Enright, who have so generously taken time out from their busy schedules to discuss Colin's book. Thanks a lot for joining us. And we also have Colin McFarlane with us,、um, the author of the book, to、uh, respond to the interlocutors. So thanks also to Colin for joining us. I feel that the author and the interlocutors need little introduction. However, I'm still going to say a few words about each of you for the benefit of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with your work. So, starting with Dr. Tatiana Time,、um, she's an associate professor of human geography at the University College London. At a broad level, Tatiana's research focuses on ethnographies of entrepreneurial and makeshift urbanism in cities of the global north and of the global south. She's written about everyday cultural and economic geographies of precarious labour that take place outside of or alongside based economies. With particular interest in hustle economies and what they teach us about non-normative labor relations and urban practices at the mar at the margins, her research focuses on urban political ecologies of waste, 
sanitation and repair with a particular passion for seeing what lies beyond negation. Her recent research projects have been funded by the ESRC and by the British Academy. And she is currently working on a book project drawing together 15 years of ethnographic material from Narabi, Kenya. Next, we have with us Dr. Teresa Enright. Her research examines urban and regional politics with a focus on infrastructure and mobility. She has written about conflicts over urban transit in Toronto, London, and Paris. Her more recent, most recent work considers cultural dimensions of transportation through an analysis of the art, architecture, and design of urban rail networks. Dr. Enright is the author of The Making of Grand Paris, um, Metropolitan Urbanism in the 21st Century, published by the MIT Press in 2016, and uh, editor with Ugo Rossi of the Urban Political Ambivalent Spaces of Late Neoliberalism, published by the Palgrave Press in 2017. Next with us is Dr. Kevin Ward, who is a professor of human geography and the director of Manchester Urban Institute at the University of Manchester. He's also the editor-in-chief at Urban Geography. His research interests center on comparative urbanism, municipal finance, policy mobility studies, and urban governance. He's the author and editor of 11 books and author of over 80 book chapters and journal articles, including publications in the Antipode, Environment and Planning A, International Journal for Urban and Regional Research, Urban Geography, and Urban Studies. Lastly, with us is Colin McFarlane, the author of the book. Uh, he's a professor at the Durham University. His research focuses on urban living, densities, fragments, and learning across different cities, focusing in particular on economic margins. He's the author of several books, some of which I mentioned at the start of this podcast. So perhaps to open, open up this discussion, I would like to invite Teresa Enright to say a few things about Colin's book. Welcome, Teresa. Okay, well, um, thank you, Nishin, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And of course, for, to Colin for writing this book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading Fragments of the City, and I found it to be incredibly generative for the project of making sense of cities, both as an intellectual project, but also uh, more personally, just for learning how to reflexively and responsibly be in city spaces. And since reading and rereading the book, um, I've come to notice and respond to fragments in different ways. So I think that's testament to, to the book's force. And I think the aspect of the book that I found most refreshing is that it invites a really unscripted reading of how urban worlds come to be and how they come to be otherwise. Emphasizing that the urban is always plural and provisional, Fragments of the City starts with elemental details and it links them together without assuming from the outset any inherent structural logics or formulas or any final shapes and goals. And in so doing, it calls into question many of the taken for granted approaches of urban theory today which so often connect the world's dots into shapes that conform to existing beliefs. The book thus cuts a bold and original path into and through the field of critical urban studies, but it does so in a manner that's also thoroughly modest and eclectic. Through a range of methodological excursions into fragment urbanism, fragments of the city ask compelling poetic questions, it patchworks colorful happenings across different contexts, 
and it sounds out resonant concepts for theorizing a multiplicity of urban experiences and politics. The book is also endlessly pedagogical um, for cultivating modes of attention and modes of action, so ways of seeing, walking, feeling, writing, making, thinking, and being that are attuned to the complex interplays of actual urban life. And on page 91 in the book, um, you reference David Kishik's call that we let the city change the way that we think. And for me, the book really achieves that. So I, I understood it as an attempt to be really receptive to modes of urban expression that might otherwise not be recognized. And as a result, the, the book is very performative. So rather than approaching criticism as a matter of exposing or unveiling or interrogating um, all of these very violent metaphors that we use to describe rigorous work today. The book is instead constructive and creative, dialogically engaging interlocutors with or in the very connective practices that it analyzes. It thus provides a provocation and an example for how to do urban scholarship in a way that takes critique into productive and world-making directions. So both in its form and its content, the book really highlights how to increase shared capacities through rearranging elements and reshaping relations. While the book presents a clear-eyed account of extreme forms of violence, dispossession, and indignity, it nevertheless remains incredibly hopeful. Fragments of the city is veritably humming with the potentials of collectives in the making. And I think it's a really challenging task to convey the discontents of contemporary urbanization and the severity of differentially experienced uh, and multiply overlapping urban crises, while also emphasizing the margin of maneuverability that enables life to persist and sometimes to thrive. And the book does both of these things at once, forwarding a radically pragmatic politics that exists in what Eve Sedgwick once called the heartbeat of contingency. And I have many thoughts and, and many questions. Writing in fragments, of course, encourages reading in manifold directions. But I'll just briefly comment on two of the ways that the book resonated with me, and then I'll raise a few questions for a discussion. So the first uh, theme that I want to talk about is really the role of aesthetics in imagining, sensing, and learning the urban. So many of the claims in the book center around epistemological practices and the kinds of embodied, sensory, situated, and relational knowledges that are needed for apprehending the city and its incessant dynamics. And I was particularly uh, struck by the turn to art in the book as a potential site for both reading and for activating fragments. There's a real prominence to artistic practices throughout the chapters, from the co-created exhibition in Kampala celebrating Namuongo, to the analysis of artistic collaborations around junk art in Los Angeles, to the invocation of the work of a whole range of artists and artistic practices, from music to performance to visual arts. And so, uh, I was wondering why artistic practices as creative sense-making endeavors feature so prominently in the book. What, if anything, is distinctive about art as a means to engage and politicize fragments? Uh, do artistic practices that are attuned to fragments reframe the way that we think about the relationship between aesthetics and politics and political agency? And if so, how? And what can we as researchers learn from art? Um, so what are the implications for this emphasis on the artistic for how we engage in urban scholarship practice and, and policy making? The second set of questions that I have focus on the ambivalence of density uh, as a political force and the extent to which density is both the condition and challenge of urban politics today. And maybe this is just actually an invitation 
uh, for Colin to speak about the relationship of fragment urbanism to some of your more recent work. And I was struck by the paradox throughout the book that on the one hand, density connotes this cruel math of resource scarcity, inadequate infrastructure provision and debilitating oppression, where living close often means the accretion of durable forms of racialized, gendered, ableist, classist, exclusion and incapacity. And on the other hand, density also intensifies and multiplies interactions and connections in positive directions. It's a precondition and a resource for social infrastructure and through what Antonio Negri and others might describe as an aleatory materialism, it has the potential to furnish joyful capacity, increasing political engagements of all kinds. So how do we understand density as both a condition of political openings and closures and of different kinds of politics? How can we think about this relationship between fragments and density across varied contexts where the affordances of propinquity might differ? And then uh, lastly, I suppose summing these up, if you could elaborate on the connections then between fragment urbanism, density and the urban political. Thank you, I'll stop there. <laughs> thanks, Teresa. Thanks, thanks for that uh, really brilliant analysis and uh, for the set, set of questions as well. Uh, Tatiana, would you like to go next? Okay. Thank you, Nitin, so much for the invitation and to Colin for this book. And um, I'm delighted to be with you all today. So this is a this has um, been a, a really wonderful kind of, I guess, journey into um, a book that to me feels like it brings together in, in, in really generative ways a lot of the different work that I've been following over the years. Um, so Colin, it's a tool de force in many ways. And I'll just share a few overall impressions impressions, I suppose. And then um, because I read the book during the last few weeks where I also did a little bit of uh, reconnecting with some fieldwork in Paris, I'll just evoke a couple of points that made me think differently about what I was seeing in Paris, sort of using your book in a way as a, as a methodological um, companion, I suppose, as well as uh, a way of thinking conceptually about fragments. Um, and then I'll kind of highlight a couple points for potential discussion or questions that I'd love to hear more about from you. So my overall impression is that this book does so much, <laughs> and yet it also anchors itself very firmly within a well-stated aim, which is to bring different ideas and scenes from different places um, in conversation with one another as a kind of way of seeing the urban world. Um, near the end, you state that you write in a register between meta-narrative and local specificities. And I think that you do this very well by presenting what feels like a kind of kaleidoscopic effect, a mix of different elements and situations and indeed scales that are manifest through both the kind of content that you do um, cover, but also your different kind of methodological uh, maneuverings. So you move from walking the streets uh, where the granularity of city life um, sort of hits us with, with various scenes um, that evoke perhaps places of more longitudinal research um, and, and also places where you where what one senses that you've been sort of for perhaps more fleeting um, fleeting engagements. And so we move from these kind of walkabouts to the kind of aerial view where you invite the reader to reflect on wider dynamics and issues at stake from the vertical to horizontal forms of urbanism, the visible to the invisible, to both the, um, I suppose, the different scales at play um, when we think about 
contemporary urbanism and, and indeed historical geographies of urban life. So I suppose at its core, this book to me contends with some of the kind of um, very vibrant paradoxes of urbanity and modernity, the violences and destruction on the one hand, but the generative experimentation and agentive solidarities that are often born out of shared struggles. And you then use your various empirical engagements as a kind of way into thinking about how some of these struggles are, as you say, put to work. How are they represented and narrated, contested, curated, performed, and politicized? And what's remarkable, I think, about the book is that you do some of that work of representing and narrating, contesting and curating and performing and politicizing, but you also make so much room in a very generative and generous way to a host of other, not just urban scholars, but also activists and artists from across disciplines and across a range of temporal scales. Um, you. Um, and what I really also appreciated is this kind of continuous return to the register of the inevitable disturbance that toilets and sanitation politics provoke in particular. And you make, I think, an important case for thinking about the material and embodied lived experiences of those dealing with inadequate sanitation, or as you've called it before, forced improvisation, but also the vital forms of knowledge and social infrastructures that shape the modes of care, repair, and coping strategies in all forms that often take place around what um, uh, Brenda Chaston calls excremental politics. So where fragments, in a sense, become reflective of both what is absent or broken, but also what is repurposed and assembled. Um, and you introduce alongside the first introduction of the toilet politics that you've been writing about for some years in, in your Mumbai field site, you, in, you also introduce the kind of relevance of the dump site um, and, and returning later several times to the different evocations of garbage fragments, scraps, junkyard, um, you know, what becomes junk art or assemblage sculpture. Um, and in a sense, this conceptually and symbolically and materially hooks back into this kind of theme of the urban archive at work. Um, and as someone who works on discarded, you know, discarded, um, I would say discarding practices or discard studies and also works on urban sanitation, I personally really appreciated the ways in which you, you wove in these kind of excremental politics and its different registers and the affective registers of trash and ruination into the writing and the narrative arc of the book. So working with um, different conceptual kind of registers that link into your, your, your kind of narrative of fragments, such as traces and remnants, to express different kind of ways of thinking about time and stories and palimpsests, what, as Walter Benjamin's arcade work, um, uh, you know, looking at rags and refuse and as a kind of counter narrative to the mirage of progress and coherence. And so I thought it wasn't a... Um, in a sense, I felt like it was a very deliberate, um, I guess, uh, a deliberate move to keep returning in different ways to the kind of humanitarian uh, and political object of the toilet and to the different registers of refuse and residue and remains and remnants and so on. And as an aside, something that might just be useful um, I was, I've been taken for some years by the work of Rachel Kitty, 
who has done some really extraordinary work in what she calls contemporary archaeology in Bristol and New York, working with rough sleepers to assemble a kind of archive of homelessness as a form of cultural heritage work, um, and has more recently been working on, on what she's calling migrant materialities. And so some of the ways in which you are mobilizing these kind of different registers of remnants and traces and ruins uh, made me think of this kind of relatively niche, but really interesting um, kind of area of contemporary archeology span and ways of knowing the city. What I also really loved is how you take us on this ride, exploring diverse scales of knowing fragments from the etymology of the term to ways in which fragments have long served as a tool for representing urban destruction and decay, generation, play and creativity. And in so doing, you at some point, you know, kind of pull us into a more autobiographical interlude through this, this small chapter, The Gap. And I think here is where, again, there seems to be a kind of deliberate pull into a more personal story about the Pollock housing estate in Glasgow that no longer stands where you grew up. Um, you talk about the all vibrant activity that no longer has a territory. And at the same time, remembering that activity with your readers and its territory connects the earlier part of the book to your own lived experience in a way that I think is really powerful, but also an important reflection connecting your own childhood years in that neighborhood and the wider effects of kind of, you know, these post-war social housing estates across different cities, in particular across the UK or the or different parts of Europe, um, in underserved neighborhoods that have over time undergone various stages of austerity, underinvestment, and uh, eventual demolition or regeneration. And there is a particular exhibit at the moment in Paris in Aubervilliers called La Vie HLM, which also does this work, you know, with an estate that is, uh, was built in 1957, is about to be demolished um, in the near future in the name of urban regeneration. And where there, the exhibit in part tries to take up this way of creating a kind of museum of popular neighborhoods through storytelling and testimonials of people who have lived there or who no longer do, but remember these kind of childhood memories um, and these different kind of material and affective registers by you know, having people walk through these different apartments with different remnants of their past pieces of material culture, um, letters, personal administration um, and, and various objects of their homemaking. So that, so I guess this brings me to two final points, which I wanted to make, which is one that alongside this kind of these moments of more autobiographical interlude, um, in a sense, I, I felt that there was both a kind of honesty with which you periodically reminded the reader of your partial rendering and the, inevit the inevitable limitations of any medium of expression, whether it be the exhibit in Kampala or the kind of impressions from walkabouts. Um, but at the same time, in a sense, it felt like, um, I would love to hear you speak a little bit more about your own positionality and your own kind of ethical conundrums and methodological dilemmas, I suppose, because in many ways, because we're working in this kind of way of walking through these different fragments and vignettes, we often walk through, but we don't sit with different key interlocutors that you that you write about. And so I just wondered if you could perhaps in your in your comments speak to that a little bit um, in, in, in a way that's perhaps if I if I might sort of make an observation about the empirics that come through, the the writing is both incredibly generous in its citation and its intertextuality and in its kind of um, 
you know, a huge amount of sensitivity towards your interlocutors and the people that you that you write about. And yet there is a kind of absence in a way of your own relationality or the relationships to these different field sites. Um, in other words, the relationality that would be part of a more kind of ethnographic encounter seems to be somewhat written out. Um, not to say that it's not there, but I feel like it's, I just wondered if it was sort of deliberate to kind of write it out. In other words, to pull out the potential as Ruth Behar would put it, vulnerable observer in your, in your, in your method. Um, and, my, and my second and last point to ask about is, although there is so much that you've covered in the book, so by no means, you know, this is not a criticism, but I was curious about the relative absence of attention to, as you call it on page 12, the world of work for the urban poor. And so here is where you evoke it on a few occasions, urban livelihoods. Um, and again, perhaps this is because I'm particularly interested in, in the future of work and in the, in the kind of different kinds of ways of conceptualizing work. But I just wondered if there was a, um, if you could speak to that, to, to this kind of world of work that seems perhaps less part of, of this overall, um, over this particular text. And in terms of the, your call at the end to renewed politics of the city, which again speaks to, as Teresa was putting, the kind of hopeful register, which is very both refreshing and in some ways very needed. I wondered if, um, if I could just ask you about what your thinking is on the potential divergent politics of the city that, um, you know, when we think about the rise of right-wing populism and its entanglements with the very effects of neoliberal urbanism and uneven capitalist relations and the production of different kinds of marginalization. I just wondered when you talk about liberal cities of rights and state institutions versus the city in the wild, the city of situated everyday negotiations and makeshift political bargaining, where does a place like Budapest fit in? So where, where are the cities where there is a present state and processes, but a very authoritarian one at that? Um, or, you know, the, the recent French elections, which have seen the rise of the National Front like never before, which in a way express the fact that there are, you know, the kind of peripheral, um, there's a kind of peripherality or what was called the left behinds or peripheral France or peripheral Britain in many ways, um, versus perhaps the way you articulate urban margins. So the, the different kinds of political claim making that happen when you have on the one hand refugees in Berlin or in Saint-Saint-Denis in Paris who are sleeping rough and who are making a claim to the city. Um, and in contrast, other precariously housed and underemployed um, aggrieved groups who are also feeling like they are excluded from various kinds of services and, um, and parts of the city. So I'll stop there. But again, thank you very much for the chance to read the book in such depth. And um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, Tatiana. So we have Kevin next. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, so thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be part of the podcast. Um, thanks to my, my two discussants for their insightful uh, and thoughtful comments. And lastly, thanks to Colin for writing Fragments of the City. Uh, I guess let me just say uh, from the outset that I really enjoyed the book, most of it, most of the time. Uh, it's a book of many parts, which add up to a whole lot of different things, as I think we just heard from Tatiana and, and Teresa. Chaps are long and are short. They're directed, but they're open. Uh, they're polemical and they're reflective. 
some draw upon Colin's own academic research, for which he's well known, of course, and others are reactions to one artistic or cultural product or another, so an art installation or a novel or a poem. On the one hand, the book's focus is on the urban world, as Colin calls it. However, this singularity, this whole, often disappears from view in its place, examples or fragments. Multiplicities, not variations, or maybe variations. Is there a single logic, structure or theme running through the book, I wonder? The material is fascinating. Uh, those familiar with Colin's work won't be disappointed. We have discussions of urban housing, informality, infrastructure, politics and sanitation. We have comparison. And as he has in his most important past contributions here, Colin is both creative and provocative about how we as academics render uh, cities comparable. Um, and while I guess it's not a, a not a main issue or theme that's in the book, I guess it was something that I was just alive to given my own work. Uh, and as always, Colin leaves us thinking a bit about how we compare cities, but how those activists and agents of change do the comparative work themselves. So I guess when I think back about the book, it's the, um, Colin's points about comparison are ontological, epistemological, but they're also, I think, profoundly political. The book has challenging discussions on representation and writing, on data and in methods. As to what the book adds up to, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm reminded of Jane M. Jacobs' uh, writing on the comparison of cities using Deleuze and the Deleuzean ways of thinking about the world, which is a formula of subtraction n minus one, rather than the n plus one that guides much of the academic literature on comparative urbanism, my own work, my own work included. Um, and it's fitting, I think, she appears on the back of the book with her endorsement, because I see elements of Jane's work present in the book, and Tatiana's point about the, uh, the kind of old buildings that are kind of torn down and the lives, the violence that done to, done to people's lives through the notion of urban regeneration, whether it's in the cities of the North or the South, is also something that James talked about in her own work on high rises, both in Singapore and in Scotland. And I guess when I think back about the Deleuzean points of uh, argument that Jane makes in her piece in Urban Geography on comparison, um, maybe that's the point. Uh, maybe the point of one of the points of Colin's book I take out is to know less or to be less certain about what we think we know. Uh, Colin writes about uh, comfort zones in his reading fragments chapter. And I guess I would put myself as one of the readers who found himself profoundly outside of his comfort zone. Uh, and that probably doesn't surprise Colin, given what he knows about me academically. Um, interestingly, Colin notes the following towards the beginning of his book. And I'm going to quote him here this the process of assembling text into a book is inevitably a practice of holism it is integrative standardizing structuring and disciplining it is a form of tidying up in which fragments are placed into position with inevitable consequences for how they might be read both in themselves and in relation to one another that is of course an important and necessary step for a book but for a book about fragments that seeks, at least to some degree, to experiment with what writing fragments might enable. It is a tricky process, and I have not found this question of form to be straightforward. And I'm reassured that Colin found it less than straightforward uh, in writing it. He also goes on to note that the book does not have to be read in a linear way. So for Colin, the form follows the function that is organising the book in a non-additive, non-linear manner, 
writing in fragments in his words, allows him to experiment with how best to package and represent the register in between meta-narrative and local specificities. So I guess one of the things that would be interesting to hear Colin to reflect upon, but I guess all of us can reflect a little bit about, about how we organise our thoughts um, and how a book gets read. So I guess I'd be interested in how Colin put this book together, maybe how he wrote the book. Um, and in particular, I guess, just the last uh, sentence of that, that opening chapter where he said the fragment form is, after all, just an intensification of what we all know about how we read any book. That is dialogue, translation and relational creation. And I guess that line has troubled me a little bit as I've wrestled with the book and dipped back in and out of it. And maybe that's the point. Uh, how does that intensification matter? Um, is this is Colin arguing that this book is not that different from the ways in which uh, academic books are are written or read? Um, because for me, it stands out as something quite different from other kinds of academic books. And I don't I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's great and interesting, but it's I guess it's just thinking a bit about what that the notion of intensification does for us when we wrestle with the material, the way in which it's put together. And does it make a difference about how we think people read our work? Um, and here I'm not talking about edited collections, I'm talking about author collections, but still, um, does that matter in some ways in terms of how we represent our work? Anyway, um, in terms of thinking about, uh, I guess, questions or issues that I think it might be worth wrestling with and building upon um, Tatiana and, and Theresa's comments, I guess I wondered whether Colin might, I guess, reflect upon the risks of eschewing a, a whole urbanism approach, because that's essentially what Colin's counterposing his book against, and replacing it with fragment, ur, fragment urbanism, urbanism. You know, is whole, whole urbanism some meta-narrative? And if not, and the other as something else, um, is whole urbanism one that objectifies completeness while the latter emphasises incompleteness and openness? Or is there more going on in, in, in Colin's argument about um, ways of thinking and imagining uh, urban worlds? And I guess that takes me on to a second point, which if we're focusing on the fragments of thing and a noun, do we lose anything? And if so, when, in what ways does this matter in an understanding efforts? to make urban worlds. And I guess the final thing, which is, and I guess I kind of, I understand, it's interesting to reflect upon the kinds of things that made it into the book and the kind of positions out of which it's written. Um, I guess for me, what's not missing, but thinking a bit about the ways in which others that are involved in making urban worlds don't appear in it. Um, and I guess thinking about how those charged to design and plan them in the form of policymakers and practitioners appear in the fragment. So, you know, in what ways do those who are making decisions around infrastructure or sanitation or housing, um, in what ways do they appear, appear in that fragment? Uh, and what difference does their appearance make to, to some of the kind of stories that, that appear in the book? Um, Partly because on page 223, Colin talks about um, without connecting fragments and holes. So in a sense, he's aware of the fact about those fragments that suggest that it's important. And I like that point about connected, connective devices in that chapter. But it suggests that Colin's aware of 
of the work that needs to be done in terms of the ways in which we think about holes and fragments um, and how we might think about widening the repertoire of people who are involved in those in those conversations. Um, but they're not so they're, I guess those stories are not as present in, in this book. And I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, so we, we, we have Colin now uh, with us and uh, perhaps Colin, would you like to respond to these? Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Nitin. And can, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yeah, great, thanks. Well, firstly, thank you so much to Teresa, Tatiana and Kevin for those really, uh, it's really humbling just to hear people um, talk so eloquently about something you, you, you've you you've produced. It, you know, there's always a weird sense when you write a book, isn't there, that, you know, it lives on your laptop for a very, very long time. And then it kind of goes out into the world and part of you wonders if anyone will ever read it. And part of you is terrified that people might. Uh, so, so it's a curious kind of experience, isn't it, when you put your work out there in that in this way. And to have people... Uh, uh, who are so who I, whose work I admire so much, and who are so thoughtful and so brilliant to engage with the book, and to take this time, um, uh, uh, especially at a point in our, in our teaching terms when we're all a bit pushed. I'm just really um, genuinely grateful and humbled by that. So thank you. I've wrote down uh, lots and lots of notes that I will be thinking about for a long time. Um, I'll just respond. Uh, just uh, I'll try to be as brief as I can. So please do interrupt, uh, Newton, if I end up going on uh, too long. But um, Teresa, I'll begin because Teresa started. Uh, thank you again so much for those fantastic comments and suggestions. Really, really helpful. Um, uh, I'll just go straight to some of the questions you asked uh, in case I in case I lose my my place and go on too long. But you asked partly about um, the kind of presence of the visual and the artistic in in the book and why the book sort of gives so much space to thinking about sort of art practices and what that means for writing about fragments. And um, and I think it's partly, you know, sort of echoing what Tatiana was saying about the way in which the book focuses on waste and sanitation um, uh, so much, partly because that's simply been a very long-standing set of concerns and interests that I've had in, in previous work. Um, it's partly for that reason that I was drawn into some of the more artistic debates around fragments, because there's a very long history of art working with fragments of urban waste um, uh, and many of the, the kind of examples in the book then sort of like delve into this relationship between uh, and I think Tatiana put this really well in her comments I, I don't have to sort of repeat this but between sort of um, sort of sanitation struggles or in very poor neighborhoods in places like Cape Town and Mumbai um, uh, and elsewhere where there are long-standing um, deep inequalities around sanitation uh, infrastructure provision uh, where you have very heavily fragmented and broken up and inadequate systems and where people are, are forced into all kinds of improvisations and political um, claim making uh, as a result and 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 what so, so there is art around around that kind of relationship between sort of waste and the nature of the urban condition, the kind of, the kind of production of inequality, and the possibility for some kind of alternative urban configuration. Um, so artists in India, uh, for example, writing about waste and sanitation, which are drawn, but also um, in other parts of the, of the urban world. I think what's compelling about that work, that kind of tradition of work on, on uh, waste in art, is that often it's about taking fragments and putting them into a new context and in doing so sparking a conversation 
So this, I think, really speaks to fragments both as, as to echo Kevin, both as nouns and verbs. So I'm kind of interested in the book, primarily in forms of art that want to say something about the urban condition and urban inequalities, but which do so in a way which creates a kind of stepping back, a kind of space, a generative space for discussion and reflection on certain conditions, uh, whether that's in relation to particular artists or in relation to uh, the exhibition in Kampala with Jonathan Silver and at Sheffield and other colleagues that Teresa mentioned, which sought to kind of assemble knowledge fragments to generate a conversation about a particular neighbourhood in the city. Um, so it's kind of about the way in which art creates a space for discursive politics, uh, whether that's challenging stigma or recognising different lives and positions or telling stories that aren't often told. Um, and I think that's partly what's distinctive about art as a means of engaging in politicizing fragments, this capacity to create space for representations, stories and possibilities. Exhibitions uh, do some of that work uh, and that's partly why the book sort of focuses on them. And, it's, and that form of politics of fragments that you see in that kind of tradition of art and waste, I think is very different from the other forms of politicizing fragments I discuss in the book. So uh, for example, the demonstration on the street or the, the occupation around sort of protesting against refugee conditions in, in Berlin, for instance. I think these are different kinds of um, political politicization of fragments, which nonetheless might resonate with some of the art, art, art experiments, but are, are quite different in terms of what they enable uh, as a sort of space of, of, of political reflection. Um, so, you know, the question then is what we might learn from artists and how they pull together different relations in creative ways. And partly as, as you were kind of intimating Teresa is partly about trying to understand how artists open out possibilities rather than shut things down. So rather than the kind of the, the kind of decision of critique that, that things are a certain way and ought to be ought to be um, uh, a certain alternative way, art pauses with a space of of discussion and generative reflection for all its messiness and strengths and weaknesses and limitations, which I think is a little bit distinctive. And I think we can learn something there from, from how artists work. The, the last thing I'd say about the aesthetic is that it also features, I think in the book Beyond Art, um, so even if, if only in passing. So for example, I'm talking about this, sort of these protests in Cape Town where um, residents and activists through um, sort of discarded buckets of, of waste, human waste, into certain spaces in the city, um, uh, you know, the state legislature and so on. This again is based on work with Jonathan Silver. And a lot of what's going on there is a politics of spectacle, um, sort of mediatized circulating images uh, that generate a kind of visceral effective response. So there's also an interesting kind of way in which um, if we expand the aesthetic beyond art specifically and think about the politics of spectacle more large in a sort of larger sense, the ways in which fragments are thrown into a kind of mediatized um, politicization, and I think that uh, uh, that's those those indicate I think different ways in which art um, broadly cast might become political around fragments. Um, so you also, Teresa, mentioned uh, density, and uh, I'll try to be quick here uh, about this. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's absolutely right that the book talks a lot about density. The main reason for that, as you were sort of saying, Teresa, is that many of the cases uh, that I focus on, uh, in places like Kampala, Mumbai, Berlin, uh, and elsewhere, are, are involve the, the politicization of fragments in very dense, marginalized, often very poor um, urban contexts. Um, and so density figures here 
is rather straightforwardly simply because of the equation of provision versus numbers of people, right? So the history of state disinvestment, abandonment and violence of particular dense spaces uh, creates these huge inequalities in say sanitation or water or housing uh, conditions, which then puts additional pressure on these systems, which often leaves them in fragments and requiring fragments of stuff just to maintain them and keep them going and, and so on. Um, and so partly then what the question becomes how, how densities are configured into social infrastructures through which people formally or informally work together or get into conflicts and so on. So density is a kind of active resource in the unfolding nature of fragment urbanism in different places. Um, but as you were saying, I mean, it, it unfolds very differently in different places. So we know, for example, that the, the capacity to, to kind of sort of advance a politics of presence where, where we're talking about numbers of people massed in space um, in different cities is controlled by different political uh, regimes, right? So it, it might be easier in some places simply to use density as a political resource than it will be in others because of the nature of political control, policing, disciplining, violence from the state, so on and so forth, that shuts densities down, the limits, the forms of densifications that can occur and so on and so forth. So which takes me to kind of the second way in which I, I use density which is really to think about it as a resource for, for sort of protests, for, for occupations, where sort of the temporary gathering of people matting in place is vital to the making visible of claims about living with fragments, struggles of living with fragments. And this, this matters in different ways in different contexts, which I don't go into in a huge amount of detail in the book. Um, and I think the last thing is that density kind of figures, in, in, I suppose in a, in a third sense, around... Um, how artists in the book use fragments where we see cases where there's a kind of densification of people, ideas and things knotted together to tell a larger story about urban culture or urban violence or urban possibilities. So this is where the histories of fragmentation are, are in a sense sort of densely enfolded into the fragment itself when it's staged as a kind of artistic object. So, so this kind of rendering of densification as a kind of concentrated knot of a knotting of pasts and presents and possibilities. That's a kind of third more um, sort of notion of density, which I don't go into in a huge amount of detail, but hopefully that says something more about this sort of broad relationship between density, the political and fragments in the book. Um, I'll move on quickly. Tatiana, uh, just with time here. Um, Thank you so much again, Tatiana. Fantastic, uh, really amazingly kind of um, helpful, uh, 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 wonderful to hear your thoughts. Um, uh, I'll just go straight to some of the questions you, you kind of asked. Um, I suppose we should really run some positionality and multi-sightedness and this kind of moving across different contexts and moving through different contexts. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, uh, there's a sense in which perhaps there's a kind of, absence of, 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 of my own relationship to some of these field sites, um, which is, you know, potentially a bit sort of written out as you were, as you were putting it. Um, and I think it's partly a product of the fact the book is quite rangy. Um, so it cuts across different scales, as you were saying. Um, some of the cases are quite recent and active, some are historical, some are personal encounters. Um, and I wanted to try to write something, I mean, part of my impetus for writing the whole book which you know also goes to Kevin's points was was to try to write something that was sort of not a case study. Um, there's nothing wrong with um, writing case studies. Uh, there's a reason why it's at the cornerstone of the tradition of, ur of urban research. Is I do it myself. I'm continuing to do to work on case studies at the moment, but um, it's obviously a form of 
of work that were very wedded to in the urban tradition, that kind of writing. And I thought I had an opportunity with the book, um, and I very much recognise it's a privileged opportunity to move across different scalar and temporal registers, uh, drawing on different cities and different contexts. So the book's kind of a bit of an experiment in that sense. And um, uh, it does mean uh, when you're writing across these different contexts and you're also the, the kind of the difficulty of sort of deciding where to sort of linger in particular places and moments and where to move on to, to the next place in the next moment was a kind of continual sort of question I was facing. And I suppose talking about my own relationship to these places was not when I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to say over the, pace, over the space of a couple of pages or more on a particular fragment in a particular place, um, writing myself more into the text, which I have done, as you see, in different places, um, I kind of pulled back from, I suppose. Um, I guess part of it felt like there comes a point when it starts to feel indulgent. It starts to feel like the privilege that enabled me to write the book in the first place to move across all these many cities to be able to get you know the opportunity to do this work in different cities with great colleagues and so on um uh to then continue uh to talk about me is was difficult so i talked i talk a little bit about my my kind of encounter with walking and the, some of the struggles some of the um what's some of what's opened and closed off from that encounter in terms of how you see fragment city fragment cities and i talk a little bit about um my own relationship to the writing process at the start as Kevin was intimating. But as I started to go beyond that throughout the book, it started to feel more and more biographical. And I, I started to get more and more, I guess, uncomfortable about that. I don't know if that's just some kind of historic sense of don't talk too much about yourself, um, you know, rather than an intellectual position. It's almost a kind of instinctive thing. Um, uh, but there is a lot more I could have said about the particular moments and encounters. And, Actually, Tatiana, you, your paper in uh, Society in Space, uh, a sustain of the breakdown from 2021, where you go through a series of vignettes from different uh, ethnographic encounters across different cities in the world, I think is a really nice example of how to write about both the, the struggles in place, but also your conversations, your discomforts, you, your uncertainties, your moments of doubt um, uh, and concern and, and, and excitement in these different moments, you do that really rather, rather elegantly. And I think it's a kind of a model of how to do that. Um, I'm not sure I've done that. Well, I've not done that to the same extent um, for the reasons I've sort of given. Um, so at the same time, I wanted to try to write in a way that didn't feel bombastic or too certain. Um, uh, I wanted to try to keep a sense of... Um, the uncertainties I, I nonetheless do have about some of these places, the complexities of what's going on, the fact that they are, there's a lot of different places in the book. Many of them are changing really radically. Um, you're writing about particular encounters at particular moments in time with people who have moved on or who are in different circumstances um, or sometimes are in the same circumstances. And it's trying to um, keep a kind of modesty to the sheer multiplicity of the urban world without descending into saying nothing of any substance about the larger nature of poverty and inequality, which is partly, you know, why I kind of, what I wanted to do with the book was to say something larger about the nature of the experience and politicization of fragments on the, on the margins of the urban world. Um, so I try to do that and hopefully in a way which doesn't end up with a definitive statement on what and how cities are. Um, 
but it's and that but doesn't either end up in a position where it's kind of so kind of descended into a kind of uncertainty that there's the, the kind of like the larger picture sort of disappears from view. Um, so that kind of that kind of gets a little bit to to where I was with the relationship to the to the field and the writing. Um, there's a lot more I can say there, um, uh, which I've wrote down, but I won't get into. Um, last thing I'll say just quickly before I go into Kevin's comments is just labour and work. Um, you talk about uh, that Tatiana being a bit missing. I think that's I think that's a fair point. Um, I mean, labour is something. Uh, that we t I talk about a little bit in other work that I've worked on around sort of sanitation, for example, and the management and maintenance of sanitation systems, for instance. Um, but it wasn't a preoccupation, hasn't been a preoccupation of much of my, of a huge amount of my work to focus on labour. Um, so I tend to talk about labour in the book as something that is important, you know, the formal and informal work of holding fragments together, of repurposing them, of having to kind of do this often gendered work around sort of sanitation, for instance, keeping things ticking over. Um, and, I, and I'm aware of, in the book, of pointing to that labor uh, and, and describing it in some parts of the book, the right to pee movement, for example, in Mumbai, I talk about how they inspect toilets and all the rest of it and the work that goes on around maintenance, but without really going into a huge amount of detail on it. And I'm sort of, I'm really aware that Right, right. I was certainly absolutely aware writing the book that there was so much more to say about the sheer work of keeping fragments uh, on the go day by day, uh, the kind of physical and mental exhaustion of all of that um, and the toll it takes on communities, as well as the possibilities it creates for kind of solidarities and livelihoods and all kinds of things that, that you've described in your work um, uh, Tatiana, uh, but I think it's absolutely a fair point as to what you know. There's not um, there's so much more to say about it. Um, I think I'll just I'll, there's a point about populism, but I'll, I'm a bit worried about time, so maybe we can come back to that in discussion. I'll move on quickly to to Kevin's comments, and we can perhaps come back to the the comment about populism that Tatiana made because I think that's important around the sort of liberal city stuff that's in the background of the book. Um, uh, the, Kevin, thanks very much again. Fantastic, really helpful uh, to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I did wonder what you'd make of it because it's not. Uh, it's interesting. You said the book you weren't in your comfort zone re reading it, and I wasn't either in my comfort zone writing it. But I've sort of said why I wanted to try to write it and to do something a bit, try to do something a bit different for me at least, a bit different from what I normally try to do. And you're always aware when you're doing something a bit different. It's a bit of an experiment that. Um, that for some people, you know, they'll be a bit like, well, okay, you know, and I appreciate you're saying you enjoyed the book and the bits you liked in the book, but I also appreciate you're saying, well, okay, so what does this add up to here? Um, you know, how do we how do we read a book like this, which is written in these different fragments? Um, how do we think about it? Uh, um, and I think that there's a lot to say there. Um, on your point about, you know, the fragment being... Yeah, the point I the point I make in the in the book about reading always involving um, a kind of fragment relation. I suppose what I was saying there was not that all books are written in fragments. Uh, of course, they aren't. This book is is a bit, as you were saying, a bit different from um, many uh, urban books in in that sense, at least uh, for better or worse, uh, probably worse. But that I think that what I was getting at there was that um, when you know. Whenever we encounter books, whenever we read papers, books, 
go to conference, go to conference talks, seminar talks, whatever. Most of the time, what we take away are sort of slivers of of elements of of that um, particular encounter, right? So we have a particular, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've noticed that I can read the same academic book over time and take very different things from it um, or notice very different things in it, depending on kind of where I'm at at the time, where my head is, what I'm working on, whatever it might be, um, you know, where I read it, what's happening around me, you know, you know? and I think that um, that doesn't mean there's not consistencies across those different reading experiences. You know, it doesn't mean that there aren't kind of like take home messages, but it does mean that I do think there's a kind of niche, there's a kind of sense whenever we read that we're, we're often encountering um, we take away sort of fragments of understanding of those texts um, for all kinds of, of reasons. Um, so I think that was the point I was trying to make there was that, you know, to imply a kind of, that there's a kind of holism that you can achieve in a book that readers will all take away. There's a kind of singularity that you can produce in a book that readers will take away. I think that with some books, it's more likely than others. And certainly my book is... Uh, this book is at a more sort of less likely kind of end of that spectrum. But I think it's also a, a massive presumption to think that we can do that because I, I think that we read things in radically different ways and we underestimate that, um, the, the extent to which that happens um, a lot of the time. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm continually noticing that in terms of how people interpret different things. Um, but I don't think the book tries to eschew a whole urbanism approach. Um, I mean, I think it's true that I don't talk a lot about holes, uh, but that's partly because there are lots of books that do that in different sorts of registers. And my aim here was to stay with the fragment idea and experiment with that. So I do think that holes are important, as you were saying, Kevin, your own comments, and uh, you know, and, um, and, it, and actually they're unavoidable and inevitable. Uh, um, uh, and I think that also the fragment idea very often conjures a notion of the whole. It, you know, political campaigns around fragments, for example, in cities often carry a vision of the whole with them, you know. So some sanitation struggles, for example, have a vision of an integrated sanitation system, uh, a, a particular kind of whole, if you like. So that's partly why I think that there are things we can learn from activists. And I sort of argue sort of in the second half of the book, uh, for, for instance, groups like the, the, the Right to Pee group in Mumbai, which is a sanitation movement, I think, you know, what's really interesting there is the way in which a group like Right to Pee is both involved in the messy work of maintaining and working with fragments in situ, so in place, you know, with state officials, landlords and local political groups and civil society groups and residents and so on to maintain fragmented infrastructures in different ways, but also trying to call the state into question, always, you know, bringing data to the state and the state of um, so the nature of toilet blocks in the city and looking for new policy frameworks, looking for increased budgetary provisions for sanitation across the urban realm, you know, trying to build some kind of network, not necessarily material, but some kind of network provision of sanitation that would resemble some kind of whole. So I think there's always a kind of sense in which the whole is there. Nonetheless, I think I could have probably said more about holes in the book and their necessity to sort of big picture thinking, to big politics, big budgeting, big transformation in the city. Um, it's that, those are actively vital questions for all of us interested in cities and stuff that I'm working on in other work. Um, but I, I was pleased though, Kevin, that you felt the book prompted, you know, some, some reflections for you around the relationship between fragments and holes and how they interact, how they're defined, how they're thought and politicized, 
and that's partly why I was talking about connective devices towards the end of the book, uh, between between fragments and holes. Uh, and that was one of my hopes, I guess, for the book was that the book would maybe generate some interest around that relationship between fragments and holes. And um, it, you know, there's a lot more to say that the book doesn't say. I think about about that. Um, there is also, I'll just kind of wrap up here because I'm aware of time. There's also, the last thing I'll say, uh, there's a lot more to say about holes and fragments and incompleteness, uh, Kevin, that you mentioned, but I'll turn to your note about the fragment as a thing or a noun. Um, I think sorry, I think, I think you were getting that sort of fragments as both noun and verb, correct, correct me if I'm wrong there. And what we sort of lose in keeping a hold of fragments, both as things, nouns and verbs, forms of doing, relations and so on as I do in the book. Um, and I try to keep hold of both the fragment as thing and fragment as verb, uh, because I, the context I'm describing quite often see people encountering, using, changing, politicizing fragments in different ways over time, uh, in, in different ways over space. And so as things, fragments can sometimes be sort of redefined in the doing, um, uh, in the ways in which they are sort of put to work or thought or made political. Uh, uh, so those Cape Town protests that I briefly mentioned earlier, for example, is a kind of reinvention of fragments of waste in order to make a larger political point about the ongoing sort of inequalities of, of post-apartheid cities in South Africa and relationships in race and waste and class and so on. But, you know, you, you raised the question, well, what's lost in that in doing that? Um, and I think, you know, it's a really important question because the book works with quite a, an expansive notion of the fragment as an idea, um, as a form of knowledge, as a material thing, as a form of expression, as a way of writing. Um, and so it kind of, you know, it ranges, very rangy, as I said earlier, across very different ways of thinking about fragments, as well as very different places and um, uh, types of organisations and types of action and so on. And so you could have had, you could have had a book, for example, that stuck more, more, more closely to fragments as nouns, you know, uh, fragments, for example, as, as small things, literally very small bits and pieces of broken or discarded materials. Um, uh, you know, and, and that may give you also a much more sort of materialist story of, of fragments in the sense of actually the, the composition, the material composition of fragments, how they're made, what their histories are, um, and what that reveals about the nature of cities. Um, so, I mean, I try not to lose sight of the material composition of the fragment throughout the book, but what I prioritise is the relationships fragments are enrolled into. So I'm interested in what fragments are sort of made to do, um, uh, whether it's about survival or politicisation or opening up new possibilities or ways of seeing for activists or artists or residents or whatever. I'm interested in, in that kind of, and that's why I talk about the sort of making of urban worlds, that sense in which fragments are sort of pulled into all these kind of different relations over time, even as they are also part of habitual repetitive relations as well. You know, there's that, there's that, there's that element as well. So, it's, so um, yeah, um, there is more in here um, in about policy and, uh, uh, and practice. And you'll just say very, very quickly on that, Kevin. Thanks for that. Um, the book doesn't sort of focus specifically on policy and practice in any in any huge bit of detail. Um, uh, because it tends to stay with the residents, the, art, the activists, the, sorry, the activists, the artists, and so on, the writers that you, you mentioned. Um, but what I tried to do was draw in sort of policy, the states, you know, practitioners um, in the fragment, in the examples that I talk about. So whether that's in Berlin, when we're talking about how refugees and activists encounter the state and where the state becomes present 
in the fragment in its lack of provision of decent water or sanitation or shelter, for example, or in the case of, sort of the LA Watts riots in, in, in the 19, late 1960s in the US, looking at how fragments of debris from those, those events, uh, uh, um, those so-called riots, um, become part of a conversation about the history of state disinvestment and violence and about the remaking of fragmented neighborhoods. Um, or in Kampala, the sort of the, the kind of nature of, of the state sort of appears in how in, in people's stories of sort of um, the kind of a, a disinvestment, disinvestment of the state in, in say road infrastructure. Um, and again, Mumbai, right to P, the state appears kind of around negotiations around local level maintenance of sanitation as well as in investment across the urban realm and so on and so forth. So there's these ways in which the state kind of appears, and there are cases where the state is addressing fragments much more than it is others. Sometimes it's very destructive, sometimes it's more progressive. And what I try to do in the book is instead of sort of foregrounding the policy practice kind of element, I, I turn instead to the forms of politicization by residents, activists and artists. And I ask the question, you know, what kinds of strategies work where and when? And try to say, well, rather than be prescriptive about any particular strategy, what we see over time and space in these different contexts is that different strategies work better or worse at different times. And there's things that we can collectively learn from activists, from artists, by looking at that when we're thinking about, you know, changing state policy or, or, or lobbying the state in one way or another. Um, nonetheless, I think there's another book to be written, which would be really interesting around, for me at least, to, to read around how policy and practice see fragments and encounter fragments and what the consequences of that are, socially, politically, ecologically, and so on. In the city, and I think that also goes a little bit to Tatiana's point about populism um, in France and also Budapest and other places. So um, I'm aware of time. Uh, there's more to say, but I'm going to stop talking to allow more time for conversation and just thank everyone again for that for those really fantastic, uh, challenging, thoughtful questions. Thanks, Colin. Um, so we have time uh, for for an open exchange. Uh, perhaps Theresa, Tatiana, Kevin, if you would like to uh, respond to some of things that Colin sort of um, raised now. I have a, a quick a quick comment, if that's okay. Um, but yeah. I don't know, is that okay? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you, Colin. Those were wonderful responses. Um, and I just wanted to maybe try to very briefly, uh, I guess, speak to that last point about policy that um, Kevin raised, but also sort of, um, to pick up on my my comment about labor, and I completely take your point that yeah, that's not a primary focus. And I also think you do it really well in how you um, conceptualize this notion of care and consolidation. So it's not to say that labor isn't absent in your in your kind of framing at all. And I think the way that you talk about care and, and consolidation works really well to think about you know the kind of different forms of social infrastructure at play. Um, but I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say this very briefly. I, there was something that I really thought was wonderful on, this is on page 171 at the end of the exhibit in Kampala where two of your collaborators, Josephine and Amiri, reflect on um, what goes unseen or unincluded in the curation of, of the exhibit. And this is, I felt like it was a wider acknowledgement of what goes unseen in our research outputs um, and, it, it, and, you know, even when we have a kind of inbuilt spirit of collaboration and outreach. And one of the things that they remarked on was youth issues of income generation and what residents' priorities are. And so to kind of 
make a bridge between that comment and this kind of question around policy and my point about labor, I guess one of the things that I found really useful about thinking with fragments when I think about my own interest in work and labor and how people interested in the in the future of work um, who are thinking across policy spheres, public, private, and third sector, how, are, how might fragments resonate with them? So to think about your various um, uh, field sites, the in Germany, one of the things that I was noticing when I was working in Berlin around 2017 onward was the lamentation by both refugees or new Berliners and older Berliners about this kind of workfare uh, system that Germany had become, where your entrepreneurial or economic contribution was what was essentially what would allow you to have the right to stay or the right to kind of be visible vis-a-vis -vis the state. And so the irony of that was that there was a relatively kind of celebration of the ability for new and older Berliners to get work and their lower rates of unemployment. And yet um, local interlocutors would talk about the perverse logic of the one euro job or the mini job, the five hour job a week or the one euro job um, or this Ausbildung pro program of, of continuous serial kind of apprenticeship, which is which can go unpaid for months. And so I, I think of that in relation to gig work and the, the gig, the on-demand kind of gig of the last decade or so, which has obviously been both celebrated and abhorred, uh, depending on whether you think it's kind of fantastic creative flexibility or casualization of labor. And the last 40 years of work done by different anthropologists and economic anthropologists and urbanists around informal economies who note that there is a diversification of income activities amongst informal sector workers that is often negated or thought of as too piecemeal or invisible vis-a-vis -vis policy actors. And in a, in a sense, it just feels like actually thinking through fragments can be a productive lever to thinking about the different ways in which work is, is making work is assembled. Um, outside or alongside the, the, the wage and the insecure wage increasingly. Um, so just thinking about sort of different ways in which people become economically active and thinking through fragments perhaps also contends with your very vital point early on in the book about not romanticizing entrepreneurial urbanism, et cetera. So anyway, that's just one thought about how to think about bridging this issue around policy, how to think with fragments, um, and, and, um, and something that I thought was really nice that you put forward Josephine and Amiri's point about acknowledging what goes unseen in our research outputs or what is unknowable. Yeah, thanks, Tatiana. That's really helpful. Um, I think there's, I can see we're, you're sort of driving at there and kind of thinking about fragments of, of, of labor and, and the ways in which those, those stories are sort of foregrounded or seen and unseen and the kind of policy potentials of that. Um, and it's interesting to think about the forms of labour which I suppose um, residents, you know, would wish for, in some cases at least, greater visibility, protection, investment, security and so on from the state, but also the forms which, you know, I'm thinking partly of people like Sab Abdelmalik Simone's work, for example, in, in terms of the, some of the forms of labour where perhaps, this, you know, the, the visibility from the state can become the problem um, or can at least become a perceived to be a risk in different ways for different groups and that sort of um very delicate kind of line there around sort of visibility forms of labor state scene and the consequences which unfold and how that unfolds in different different cities and different places um it's a it's a 
quite a wild politics that something that can often gets kind of uh can move in unpredictable directions isn't it but uh, um i think it's a fascinating question uh so thanks thanks for adding to that tatiana thanks thanks Tatiana, and thanks colin uh teresa kevin would you have something to add I have an additional question and actually maybe it just repeats some of the comments that Kevin's already made about the, the practice of writing and writing in fragments. And I, I did have some questions about in what cases is it helpful to write in fragments and in what cases do we want a more kind of coherent view of things. Um, but I also have just practical questions um, because I find, I, I find this book really um, inspiring and wonderful and in so far as it does kind of defy these conventions of academic writing, but but uh, not everyone can do this. And so I, I guess I was wondering, like how you went about convincing your editors that this was a, a book, um, but also more generally how in our practices of, of doing academic work, can we encourage more provisional experimental forms of writing? because so often the constraints of the system of, of journal publishing, of book writing, of academic presses, of peer review, uh, prevent this from happening at all. Uh, so, I mean, the, the writing in fragments, uh, thank you, Teresa, for bringing that up again. Uh, it's a really great question. Um, I, I mean, Kevin's absolutely right. It was not comfortable. Um, I, I mean, it's in many respects, I've been trained to write in a very conventional way. I'm very comfortable with 8,000 words and a case study. And, uh, uh, so, so the, the amount of times I ask myself, why the hell am I doing this to myself during this process? Um, uh, you know, friends will who have complained to about this will know what I'm sort of referring to because I've I actually originally wrote the book. I, I didn't see this in, in, in any detail, but originally originally wrote a book in sort of more conventional chapters uh, with you know, and then uh, I, um, as I got through the writing, I, I started thinking, well, hang on, um, to what extent? would it be worth pushing myself a little bit here to try to use form to mirror content, to try to experiment with the idea that it may lend greater weight to a story about a sort of broken urban world, broken urban worlds, um, to use Tatiana's phrase, um, in, to write th th those worlds through um, this kind of resonance moving across quite different contexts, but hopefully showing some of the shared sense of, of, of struggle in politics or forms of politicization that come out of those different places um, uh, by moving quickly between them uh, and by being sparing um, or, or relatively sparing about the amount of detail they go into in order to kind of create a kind of reverberance or echo across these different places to say, you know, here, here's a set of places which in the face of it, and they are extremely different. They are singularities to use sort of Tariq Jazeel's language in many respects, but there are resonances between them around the shared struggle of just trying to piece together daily life in the context of a violent, hostile or, 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 or disinterested state. Uh, we, and to try to form ways of, of not just coping, but but, but politicizing, changing, challenging, experimenting with different possibilities, even despite all those challenges. And to see that some of that was resonating across places as different as refugees in Berlin and people fighting for sanitation in Bombay or Cape Town. And that was kind of the gamble. And I thought, well, the fragment form, it felt, it felt like it was right to try and to explore with it. Um, the, at California, 
press, the editor um, was just really open to it, you know, and uh, I don't know, because I don't know to what extent I and maybe many of us have ingested this notion that actually journals and, and book editors um, are more restrictive than perhaps they actually are. Um, I'd be curious about to hear from Tatiana about her experience of publishing the Society and Space paper I mentioned earlier, because that is also written in these kind of vignette form fragments. Um, and, you know, some, I mean, as Kevin said, some some respondents, some readers, some editors are, are more open to this than others. And, and for good reason, it's important to challenge it and say, well, why are you doing it this way? You know, there's a reason why conventional forms of writing our conventions. It's not just sheer habit. It's also because it often works quite effectively, actually. Um, uh, uh, so, so why why do it? You have to put the case for it. Um, they were very open, California, and they from the start got the idea that there was a relationship between content and form here to be explored, and they wanted to be convinced by it. But they were they listened and they took it on board my my rationale, and they um, they were happy to support it. So that was fantastic and. I know, I know not all publishers would do that. And, I, you know, and it's also, I'm aware as well, that it's hard to do that when it's, say, your first book and you're maybe trying to get published for the first time. I, I guess it's probably harder to do that, um, to, to push a more experimental style. I mean, I, I can't be sort of sure because it's difficult to second guess what the kind of larger editorial context is. But my hunch is that I have at least, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a bit more difficult for people who haven't published very much before because the editors might be less keen to try new styles. I don't know. I've also heard from other colleagues that the pandemic has had a bit of an impact on some presses, where some presses are maybe uh, less open to experimental forms, um, partly because the pandemic had an impact on, on some presses financially. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard it said um, before. Um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you guys think about uh, that question? So I think it's an important question. Kevin. I know. I kind of feel like I should say something now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I thought your response, Colin, was very good. Uh, and I was being a little bit naughty and provocative with my thoughts. Um, and I really enjoyed the book. Um, I do think um, I love the word rangy. <laughs> uh, I think that does sum up my, uh, my sense of the book uh, as a kind of mode of organizing and and writing and um i mean i, I guess yes i think there probably are some more pre some presses that are a bit more open to this than others and if you get the right person who's open to it and you make a convincing case they'll probably more like to publish it a bit like you know journal papers some journals are a little bit more open to slightly alternative forms um of representing our ideas, whether you start with stories or vignettes or poems or whatever else. So an EMPD in Society and Space is one of the more open of all the, you know, family of geography journals, I would say. Um, I mean, what's interesting, I think, your, your point about um, how this book differs from other kinds of academic book, I mean, clearly outside of academia, I'm looking at Richard Hoggart's pages and his books, some of this stuff I've got, um, you know, there is a kind of tradition of 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 non-academics writing or will self-collection of pieces, you know, of writing kind of thoughts and collections and bringing together pieces that kind of move through time and space, as Tatiana said, um, and, and making them work for the author uh, in a kind of way that academics don't tend to do that. Because you said, you, you said Colin, um, you know, we have a certain way of, of a certain way of, of disciplining ourselves. 
which of course actually doesn't always, as you quite rightly said, doesn't always sit with how people read your work. Um, I guess the, the interesting point was more was about partly around how we imagine people, why we continue to write in a way that imagines people read our work in a certain way, even though we know they don't do that. <laughs> um, and so your point about, you know, dipping into books and taking things from them, and actually it's a relational thing in the sense of what you take from books is a lot about what else is going on in your life, et cetera, et cetera. I, I take that, all right. Um, and, you know, and again, though, people dip in and out of books, even books where there's notionally some overarching, coherent, logical additive. You collect stuff as you go through the book and you end up with a big thing at the end. Um, even there, people, I think, often read books by dipping in and out of chapters or taking stuff from them. So given what we know about that, why are we not more open to writing the kinds of books that you've written? Um, um and allowing with eight, allow, I mean, I guess your point, I think, at the beginning of the book, which I quoted about discipline and order, that's absolutely how I think about stuff generally in life. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I struggled with the book, because there's a sort of asymmetry between the chapters. You know, some are short and some are long. Um, I find it disconcerting when I read those things. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with them. Um, and like all readings, they're always personal things you, you can kind of take stuff out of them so you know uh, my comfort zone is probably narrower than some other people's and so i'm prepared to admit that it, i found the book a challenge to read not that it wasn't enjoyable and it, as you say you take stuff out of it and you go away and work with those ideas that come out of the book in your own fields um but yeah so i don't know i think you know you, you raise some interesting important issues leaving aside all the kind of interesting issues you also raise i think about the actual narratives and the stories and the challenging about how we understand the world and the way it's made and all that, uh, that, that that's a separate issue. This, but actually, as a, as a mode of writing and representing ideas, I think it's a, it's a great contribution. So well done, Colin. No, I was just going to, I was just going to thank Kevin for, you know, his comments and, you know, I totally appreciate everything you've said and, and actually recognize it and, and feel a lot of it. You know, it's, I think the other thing I would say, just lastly, sorry if I can just add, is that um, for, with, with I think very few exceptions, writing I think is a remarkably, it's quite an uncertain process for us to kind of go through, regardless of sort of how we write quite often. And it's, you know, whenever I talk to other academics about writing, it's very rare that like, yeah, I totally know what I'm going to say and I'm confident about doing it and I go about it, I do my thing and I write, bish bash, it's gone, you know? Occasionally you hear that. But for most people I speak to, there's just deep uncertainty that comes with the whole process. And I think that all these, all I wanted to say really was all these ambivalences um, that we're sort of pointing to here about how we write, who, how how people read what we write, what they take from it, whether, whether they read it, you know, front cover to cover, which I think is increasingly rare, increasingly rare for books. Um, like they're always there. And so, and I think it's just worth just acknowledging that, that is that kind of seed of doubt as well as the seeds of the kind of excitement and hope and you know that people will pick it up and engage with it and all, all, all of those doubts are, are kind of always there regardless I think of the form uh, of writing so that I think is just about the production end and I think the consumption end though there is a bigger question and I honestly don't know the answer to it around the extent to which people are actually really reading full books in academia just because of the sheer amount of time that people have pressed for other things and calls and commitments increasingly so uh for many academics um and that, that's something that um 
I've been thinking a little bit about it as well. Um, anyway, so sorry, I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, but thank you, uh, uh, Kevin. Can I, can I just say one thing, actually, Colin? This is both yeah. a compliment, but also, so in the, in the rush to try to finish the book, I have to admit, there were moments where I thought, like, can I can I skim like a few pages here and there? And it was impossible to skim. So this is an unskimmable book, which I think is I mean, it's a again, it's a compliment, because I think what happens is that other books that have the more kind of conventional form of writing, as Therese put it, kind of case studies where your intro chapter basically does an amazing synopsis of what's to come. And then if you are rushing, you can sort of, you know, pick and choose certain chapters and maybe think about shelving it for a bit and then return to another chapter. But this book actually, it, it merits a kind of full read through because you're, you're kind of nervous to miss out on any one of these fragments. And what you do really well, I think, is to signpost so often to try to remind the reader and perhaps yourself about these linking threads. So I think that's what made it very you know that it was it was very much a, a feeling of kind of mosaic tapestry threading together braiding together um in a way that the notion of chance operations which is what merce cunningham the kind of 20th century choreographer used to play with with rauschenberg that you mentioned was this idea of kind of throwing up 11 different forms of choreography you know and almost in a in a in a random way just deciding what different kind of movements to uh, to piece together and part of the interest was seeing how bodies would struggle to get from jumping to falling and you know moving from one thing to the other and here I feel like um it's there's maybe a little bit of chance operations but then you but then not because you you definitely feel like there is there's a flow and a logic across the fragments and a continuous kind of effort to signpost for the reader and bring them back so anyway, it's an unskimmable book, that is. <laughs> Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you. I would completely concur with Tatiana on this. Uh, it's, it's a completely unskimmable book. And uh, thanks a lot to uh, Tatiana, Kevin, Teresa, uh, for bringing the fragments of your thoughts to, 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 this, to this podcast. We, we, would wrap, we would like to conclude this podcast here. And thanks, thanks for listening and thanks for participating. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.